Hello and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check us out on social media. And now, this week's message. For, um, for decades, they said that it couldn't be done. It was a great idea, they said, crafted obviously by someone with great vision, but structurally, there was no way they could pull it off. From landmass to landmass, it's nearly 7,000 feet. And it'd be one thing if you could put a structure under it, but the channel that runs underneath those landmasses is 370 feet deep with incredible tides and currents. So to hook a bridge from one side to the other would mean that it would have to suspend And that had never been done before. In the history of the world, nobody had ever seen anything like that. But the great minds, the innovators, the inventors, the dreamers, they sat around and just kept thinking, it's got to happen. It's got to happen. And so in January of 1933, construction started on the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. People needed work, and so many iron workers signed up knowing many lives are simply just going to be lost. In that day and age, there was actually a ratio, a formula. For every $1 million you spent on a project, one life would be lost. They just knew it going forward. There weren't the safety procedures that we have now. So they just went in knowing it would take a toll. And on a bridge like this, one that's never been done, over that expanse, at that height, 50 to 60 men were expected to die. 50 to 60. So the work was tedious. It was slow. They were afraid to move out further and further. They were getting behind in the progress. They were not going to reach their goal. And pretty soon after the construction of phase one, the first worker fell to his death. And the men, of course, were paralyzed with fear. Who's next? How much are we going to go? What are we going to do? How far are we going to work on this bridge? And it's actually the subject of a story that we'll be looking at here today. So if you've got your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew, if you didn't bring a Bible, you can raise your hand. Somebody will bring you one. We've got them stashed all throughout the room. That's actually where I got mine from a minute ago. I was like, I don't know where my Bible is. If you're using a device, we're like, that's fine. Just turn off the notifications. I truly think there's an enemy who would love to distract you. And you're about to look at something that could change your life. And so have you ever noticed that when you sit down to read your Bible on your phone, it's like, bam, 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 all the notifications start coming, right? I think he's trying to get you off track. So shut those off and, uh, and focus on the word for just a second. We, uh, we like to put the references on the screen because we think it's important to actually look in here together. And we'll go slow. We'll tell you how to get there. Matthew's the first gospel, first one on this side of the Testaments, the New Testament. And then 25 chapters in, pretty easy to find. You have to verify and fact check what I say because I might lie to you. <laughs> All right, we're jumping in. Verses 14 through 30 from Matthew 25. Again, Jesus says, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another, two bags of gold, and to another one, one bag of gold, each according to his ability. 
Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went out and at once put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two bags more. But the man who had received only one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought it out. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five bags more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold came out also. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two bags more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back at least with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one with 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord Jesus, um, help us focus on your words, miraculously contained for us 2,000 years later. Spirit, we ask that you, uh, you take the words of my mouth so that they won't be mine but yours. Help us hear you. Amen. In uh, Matthew 25, Jesus gives some principles for life inside a new community that he is creating. If this is your first Sunday with us, you're joining us online for the first time, we want to let you know we, we started basically studying several weeks ago these stories that Jesus would tell. They're called parables, stories, illustrations that Jesus would tell to illustrate what life is like inside of this new kingdom that Jesus is building right in the middle of that broken old one that we kind of inherited, right? Jesus goes, I'm building something new here. I'm doing something new. He would often do this when he would come to a town, come to a village, come to a community, and he would, he would kind of unveil this three-act play when he would come. Act one, healing, miracle. Somebody was getting sight. Somebody was being able to walk. Somebody was going to be able to eat again. Like all of these things that people would gather around to see, they would watch these miracles. And with all eyeballs on him, Jesus would go, oh, I've got the mic. Act two, kingdom of God has come here. That's act two. He would always announce the arrival of the kingdom of God. He would go, because you saw what I just did, right? By that authority, you know that what I'm announcing is a real thing. The kingdom of God has just come here. We're planting something new. And then act three, here's what the kingdom of God is like. And he would often teach what the kingdom of God was like through story. 
through parable. So these are not, some of us have grown up learning them this way. These are not moral little didactic stories to tell you how to live. These are descriptions of the kingdom of God, of what God has already done by planting this new thing right in the middle of the old thing. And if you want to participate in it, then this is how you should live. So the how you should live part is a byproduct of the fact that God has done something already, that Jesus is planting something new right in the middle of this broken down world. He would often use these stories to communicate, this is what it looks like when people are fully surrendered to me. This is what it looks like when people embrace my will for their lives. This is what it looks like when I have totally redeemed somebody and people start living that way. That is the kingdom of God. We've been studying that together for the past several weeks. In verse 14, Jesus is, is telling a story to answer a question. We'll get to the question in just a minute. But let's just jump into verse 14. He says again, it, that's the kingdom of God, right? The, God's rule and reign among people who have been transformed and, and surrendered to him, right? It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted, circle, underline, highlight that word, entrusted, entrusted his wealth to them. He did not give them his wealth, right? He did not loan them his wealth. It's this little Greek word called parodidomai. It's fun to say. It means to give into the hands of another, to give into one's power, to use as they see fit, to take care of or manage. So this master is not asking these guys to protect his wealth. This master is not giving away his wealth. He's allowing his servants to manage his money. He's basically saying, hey, I'm going to be gone for a sec. So while I'm gone, I'm expecting you to use this the way I would use this. Do with this what I would do with it. I'm entrusting it to you. And there's a connection to the previous parable here. And we got to pause and kind of look at that because these, you know, it all often makes more sense in context. Jesus had told a story right before this one where he talks about these 10 virgins who, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And you're like, what in the world is going on in that story? You can, you can look at it later, but basically it's kind of a shout out to first century Judaic marriage custom, right? Where there were kind of three components to, a, to an engagement. And the first one uh, of a, the first stage of engagement was basically a formal agreement made by fathers. They just shake hands, spit in their hands, you know, oh, you know, our daughter and our son, you know, like, they're getting married. You know, they didn't have any say in it, but the dads are like, we've arranged this, you know, which you can see why there's three stages then. Stage two, the kids can veto the whole thing, right? And stage two, this is betrothal. There's an actual ceremony where promises are made by both the bride and groom to each other. And then stage three, approximately one year later, somewhere around a year later, the bridegroom would actually come and get his bride. But it would often be by surprise. And Jesus tells a story. He says, that's what it's like in this kingdom. Like, they don't know the day or the hour. This is why Jesus says, right before this story, watch therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. The point of the previous parable is simple. Be ready. The price for falling behind, for failing to be ready, is very high. So this next parable, the one we're looking at today, takes up this idea of readiness. The previous one, be ready. The next one, what does readiness look like? Jesus goes, oh, I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to tell you a story. 
To one, he gave five bags of gold. He's like, okay, we got this guy. He's got a bunch of money. He's got a bunch of stuff. And he's going to entrust his talents, his treasure, his money to these three dudes, right? To one, he gave five bags of gold. To another, two bags. And to another, one bag. You may have a translation of the Bible. Or maybe you heard this growing up. It's the parable of the talents. Which is also, it's a fair um, uh, translation. We're, we're going, it's a sum of money. It's a, it's a bunch of money, right? And there's different varying degrees of the money. And none of those really color the point of the parable, right? Um, the NIV calls this bags of gold. That's how they chose to translate it. All means the same thing. We're going to go with bags of gold today because I think it's easier for me to understand. So he gives one guy five bags of gold. He gives another guy two bags of gold, and he gives a third guy one bag of gold. And if you're anything like me, you're like, that's not fair. Hold on. Like, I got that far in the story, and I was like, Get, hold on, wait a minute. What? Like, okay, all right, because I, I would not be the five-bag guy, right? I think I just know that. Like, that's why I'm so defensive of the one-bag guy and the two-bag guy. Like, hold on, hold on, because... <laughs> there ain't no way. I wouldn't give me five bags of gold. Like, I totally get that, you know. But, but Jesus is just like, yeah, so he gives the guy five, and then another guy two, and then another guy one. And often people get upset. They're like, that's really unfair. And it is, sort of. Except whose gold is it? It's the master's gold. Isn't it up to him what he does with his gold? And I started looking at it from that perspective, and I kind of changed my tune a little bit, where I'm like, you know what? Far be it from me to say how you can divide up your wealth. He gives one guy five, he gives another guy two, and he gives the third guy one. And can I, just for a second, can I tell you guys, don't be offended by this, but you're all two-baggers. <laughs> all of you. You know why? Because we can all think of somebody who has more than us, can't we? Everyone, no matter how much you have, you can think of someone with more than you, and you can think of somebody with less than you. We are all two-baggers. It's just a, it's just perspective, isn't it? I read a story recently of Bill Gates on a journey in Africa. He was visiting these different villages, and he went into this one really impoverished one, and he sat in this hut with a lady, and there were reporters following him, and after he left, they went up to the lady who he'd just been spending some time with, and they go, hey, did you know that you were just hanging out with one of the richest men in the world? And she just shrugged, and she goes, all Americans are wealthy. We can all think of somebody who has more than us, and someone with less than us. It's all just perspective. If you get mad at the fact he gave one five and one two and one one, let's just go, we're all two baggers, let's move on. Verse 16, the man who'd received five bags of gold went at once, circle, underline, highlight, at once, and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So this servant immediately feels the responsibility of his assignment and goes to work without delay. He don't, he doesn't wait. He doesn't procrastinate. He's like, I'm going for it. We can say a lot of good things about this. Here. We don't know exactly how he made the money, you know, but we can say a few things, good things about it. He went to work promptly. He went to work with perseverance. He didn't give up. You know, he didn't go, it's been a minute since the master left, right? He's, he's sticking to it. He did his work with great success and, uh, and he's ready to give an account to his master. I would even say he was excited to, to give an account. 
Like when the master comes back and is like, we're going to get everybody together. He's like, oh, I'm so glad. Um, verse 17, so also the one with two bags of gold gained two bags more. So he too did his work promptly, perseverance, success, with great eagerness to give an account to his master. Verse 18, but the man <laughs> who received one bag went off dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. And Jesus' original audience probably went, ooh, that's bad. That's, all right, no, maybe, maybe the master wanted him to dig a hole. Let's see. Verse 19, after a long time. You know what that means? After a lifetime. We're not told how long, but we are told there will be a day of accountability. A day when the master settles accounts. He returns to those servants and settled accounts with them. So there's this long delay. The long delay in connection to the previous story would tempt the servants to think that there would never be a day of accountability. Right? If the point of the story is to say, um, this is how you stay ready, the previous one says, be ready. Don't let your guard down. And then this story says, how do you be ready? You stay ready. Because it could be any day. You're not tempted to get lazy which is kind of the point of the story, right? And the three servants um, are tempted to think that maybe the master is never going to come back. They would be tempted towards laziness, possibly, complacency, but they would be wrong because there will be a day of reckoning. And so he gathers them to settle accounts, which means he wants to see what they did with what they had, what they did with what he gave them. So the three servants gather all what they made, Two of them gather the wealth that they made their master. The third one shows up with probably mud on his jeans and dirt on his boots and filth underneath his fingernails because he had to go dig it up. <laughs> he had to go find where he dug the treasure, you know, and get it out and bring it to the master. The man, verse 20, who received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done. And I love this good and faithful servant. Isn't it interesting, those adjectives? He doesn't say, well done, uh, multiplying servant. He doesn't say, well done, industrious servant. He doesn't say, well done, successful. He says, well done, good and faithful. What the master in this story is interested in is the goodness and the faithfulness of the servants. The goodness and the faithfulness of these servants. He says, enter into the joy of your Lord. There's an echo of heaven in that, in that, isn't there? Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Verse 22, the man with two bags came also. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful. There it is again. Servant, you have been faithful. There's that word again. With a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. These guys receive praise from their master. They receive a promise of future blessing. They receive glory. They say, come in the joy of your Lord. And then the soundtrack changes. If you're in that first century audience, you know, this is the dum dum, you know, like the law and order moment, right? It's like this is where things get awkward. Then the man, verse 24, who had received one bag of gold came. 
He's got the dirt under his nails because he just got done digging it up because he had to go find where he buried it. He's got mud on his jeans. Master, he said, I, this is so funny, I knew that you're a hard man. He blames the master. You see that here? He's like, okay, okay, okay. I'm going to show you what I did with what you gave me. I dug it up. I got that, you know, but, and I know I'm going to be in so much trouble. But before I get to how much trouble I am in, I just got to tell you, I know you're a hard man. So this is sort of your fault, right? This is sort of, you have a reputation. You're a winner takes all sort of guy. You, uh, you harvest where you have not sown and, and gather where you've not scattered seed. That, I don't even know what that means, but it sounds epic. Like this guy, you know, you harvest where you haven't sown and gather where you've not scattered seed. He's like, so I was afraid. <laughs> and I hit, he starts making excuses before he even tells him what he, he's like, I'm about to tell you what I did. But, but you ever, you've been here before, right? Some of us have been here, but I'm going to tell you what I did. You're going to be so unhappy, but before I get to that, you need to know this is sort of your fault. I was afraid. You made me. You've got a bad reputation. I don't know if you know about your reputation, but your reputation, <laughs> you know, and so I was afraid. And so I hid it in the crowd. What did you expect me to do? In a word, blame, right? Blame. The oldest trick in the book. I mean, it, literally, it goes all the way back to Genesis. This has echoes of Eden in it, doesn't it? You've got a master with three people in front of him, and he's taking accounts, right? You guys remember Genesis? Back in the beginning of time, God speaks the world into formation and then he builds a sandcastle right and he calls it a dude named Adam and then he blows he blows his breath into it and it comes to life it's like I'm Adam and he's like now you're in charge of everything he puts him in the garden he has to name the animals and all that stuff right and God goes oh I'm gonna give him a woman and he makes him a woman he's like all right guys listen don't eat from the tree and then in Genesis chapter 3 God walks up to go on a walk with Adam and Adam he can't find anywhere he's like where are you Adam he's like oh I was hiding because I was naked and I was and God goes who told you that you were naked did you eat the fruit from that tree I told you not to you remember what Adam said he goes, yes, I did. I take full responsibility. I ate that fruit. I know I shouldn't have. And Eve had nothing to do with it. So please don't blame her. This has nothing to do with her. She's innocent. This is me. Remember? I told you you should read along, right? I might lie to you. Remember what Adam does? He goes, <laughs> he goes the woman that you gave me. Like, I didn't even know what a woman was. Like, I was alone in the garden. Sure, it was a little bit lonely, right? I had the animals. I was keeping up with all the produce. And then you came along, and you put me asleep, and you pulled a rib out, and you made this lady. And look at the mess she has made. This is between you and her. I'll be over here. Y'all work it out. Remember? He blames Eve. And, and then God goes, Eve, did you eat the fruit? You remember what she says? The serpent. <laughs> and then God looks at the serpent. He's like, yeah, I totally did it. Like, you know, that was my plan from the start. Blame. It's, bl it's the oldest trick. We blame others. And, and that blame 
It keeps us from ever having to do anything. Blame leads to paralysis. What's so interesting is that the word here in this story, I wish you could see, the word here in the story that we translate sometimes wicked, the wicked servant, you wicked servant, it's the same word for unprofitable. He didn't do anything. It makes sense in this situation, right? The master isn't angry because the guy did something bad with what he had given him. He's angry because he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. Even if he had adventured with it and lost it, it would have been better than doing nothing. But he's afraid. And this is the part that the, the master just finds intolerable. In the Greek, in Greek, you can do this thing with sentences where the, the part of the sentence you want to receive the most emphasis, you can take it out and move it to the front of the sentence, right? Because you want it to receive so much emphasis. And in Greek, this sentence reads, and the worthless, that's the first word, the worthless servant, throw him out. Remember at the, at the end when he's doling out the punishments, he goes, this worthless servant, throw him out into the outer darkness. In, in English, we translate it a little bit differently because it doesn't make so much sense. But the emphasis there in Jesus' words is, is this guy's word. He didn't do anything. He didn't think. He didn't work. He didn't even try. Instead, he just made excuses and then he hid behind those excuses. Luke and I were actually talking about this this past week. He, he popped by my office, and I was just trying to figure this out. I'm like, I, I just don't understand, like, why somebody would be given a talent and, or a bag of gold and just not use it. And he goes, oh, I totally get it. And I said, really? And I never looked at it this way before. He goes, yeah, if you're given one bag of gold and, and, and you know, you're told that you're keeping this for somebody else, what if you risk it and lose it? There's no second bag. He goes, I totally get it. I, I would have been tempted to do the same thing, to go dig a hole and put it in there. And I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. That must be why Jesus told this story. To go, hey, I know that your nature might say, keep this safe. Don't. Risk it. Go for it. Do something. Recently, an Australian nurse named Bronnie Ware published a book called Regrets of the Dying. She spends most of her time with people who are in the last 12 weeks of their lives. And she then asks them a number of questions, one of which is, what do you regret most about your life? And she discovered a very consistent pattern that she began to write down, and eventually it got published in a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And it provides us with insight that we're not supposed to have access to until the end. But Brawny gives it to us now. She said, what do you regret most about your life? The top two regrets. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Here's what she writes. She said, this came from every male patient that I nursed. They missed their children's youth and their partner's companionship. Women also spoke of this regret, but as most were from an older generation, most had not been breadwinners. All of the men I nursed regretted spending so much of their lives on the treadmill of a work existence. If we don't learn to put things in an eternal perspective, we're going to get to the end of this life and go, what did I just spend all that on? That was not a good investment. Number one regret. 
I wish, I'm quoting, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. This was the most common regret of all. When people realize that their life is almost over and look back clearly on it, it is clear to see how safely they had chosen to live. And they now had to die knowing they hadn't pursued the person God had made them to be. They instead lived a life others expected of them, choosing safety over the freedom and the clarity of living for a glory bigger than their own. Choosing safety. That's what the servant did, didn't he? Let me just go bury the thing. At least I'll know where it is. He was afraid. So he blames. And he's lazy. He didn't even try. He chose to stay safe. And I think Jesus tells us this story to warn us of a few things. One, your gifts are on loan from God. They're not yours, ultimately. They're his. And he stewarded them to you. Two, there will be a day of reckoning. As someone who loves you, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just like, I think that's the most loving thing I can do is to say there will be a day when we're going to stand before him. Three, you don't have to cover for God. If he's loaned it to you, you don't have to protect him by not using it. Can you imagine God being like, oh, thank you. Like, I'm so glad that you kept me from losing. He's God, right? Do something. And that's kind of point number four. You cannot fail. You cannot fail. Now, I want to uh, define that a little bit because this isn't a health, wealth, and prosperity thing, right? I'm not going, you go out there and you play the Powerball, you know, like, because you can do it. You got the, you know, that's not what I mean here. What I mean is that in the gospel, in the Bible, the Bible is the story of everything God did to get to you. In the person of Jesus Christ, there was a gulf that we could not cross because of our sin. And we can try to earn our way to God, and God goes, man, you're just never going to get there. So he came down to us. He did everything necessary to get to us. And now we have a relationship with him, right? We walk around motivated by him and dwelt by his spirit. And we don't have to worry about anything because the worst thing that can happen is you die and go be with him. This is why the early church, like this was such a powerful movement. They, these guys were cowards. That is the best evidence of the resurrection. These guys all went into hiding when Jesus was crucified. And then he came back to life and they're like, oh man. You know, when you've been following around a dude who, who predicts his own death and resurrection and then pulls it off, you're not frightened by death anymore. The, the powers that be would go around the Roman Empire going, shut up about Jesus or we'll kill you. And they're like, like you killed him? I don't care if you kill me. And they're like, we're going to kill you. And they're like, please don't make me go be with him. They weren't scared of death. The worst thing that can happen is we get to go be with him. That changes everything. You, you cannot fail. This past Sunday, when we got done with Encounter, we had this like this long weekend, and we were going to have some friends over Sunday afternoon, and which you know, because we needed more on our plate. And uh, I, I got home and we had to clean the house because we were going to have company. That's what Hannah said. So I laid down for 
a minute, I was like, if I can just get 30 minutes, right? And, uh, and I was 30 seconds into it when Hannah was like, hey, I hate to do this, but I think you need to check your phone. And uh, the best man from my wedding, he called because hospice came and said, uh, your mom's not going to make it to the end of the day. And she's been fighting cancer, and um, towards the end, she just said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to fight anymore. And he said, can you come over? So I drove over there, and it's about a 10-minute drive. And while I'm driving, I'm just like, Lord, what would you have me say to her? And we got to spend this beautiful moment together. And I read to her what I'm going to read to you right now from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Paul says, he has not destined you for wrath. Some of you guys just need to hear that today. We can get this image of God up in heaven as pacing back and forth with a lightning bolt. Just waiting to smite us when we mess up. He's some mean dad up there just going, oh, come on, come on, come on, come on. do it, do it, do it, I dare you, I, you know. It's like, are you kidding? Do you know what kind of dad you have? He's done everything necessary to get to you. He sacrificed his own son. Some of us think God is looking for ways to keep us out of heaven. And if that were true, the concept of Jesus would be absurd. He's looking for ways to get us in. He has not destined you for wrath. He's not mad at you. He's not fr- he, is, he has not destined you for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord, who died for you. So that whether you are awake or asleep, you will live with him. He has not destined you for wrath, but to receive salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord, who, by the way, died for you. So that whether you wake or sleep, you will be with him. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you get to go be with him. That means every circumstance, every situation, every loss, every heartache, every tragedy, every wound, And last Sunday, every diagnosis, every test result, I said, Chris, it will result in victory. You get to go be with him. He's going to heal you. It's just a matter of when. Will it be in this life or the next? You will be healed. He has not destined you for wrath. And this isn't some magic potion, some prosperity gospel that says go out there and pursue all your stuff and God's going to bless. It's not a magic rabbit's foot Christianity, right? That's not what I'm suggesting here. When we're tied to our creator, when we're glued to him, when we're walking with him, he's going to inform what you pursue. You wouldn't pursue it if he didn't tell you to, right? So our job is to be connected to him, to stay connected to him, to, in Jesus' words, remain in him. You guys remember that? In John chapter 15, he's got the disciples, you know, it's that last supper before his crucifixion, and they're all sitting on the same side of the table, so Leonardo can take a picture. Remember, like, then there's, and they're they're sitting, and Jesus is like, listen, I'm gonna die. That's where this is headed, and they're like, what do you mean you're gonna die? And he's like, it's okay, because all you have to do is stay connected to me. Uh, he goes, he goes, he's kind of like a vine and branches. You guys seen a vineyard before, like vine and branches, and they're like, you know, 
they're confused because they're disciples, you know, they're not quick, you know. So he's like, okay, okay, okay. He goes, okay, I'm, I'm going um, I'm to draw a picture. Let me draw a picture. He gets to use the napkin. He's like, here's a vine. I'm going to draw 12 branches around it, right? Does that make sense? You guys follow in? And they're like, uh, he's like, okay, there's 12 branches. What do you think the branches represent? And they're like, oh. And he goes, okay. He puts the pen down. He's like, I'm the vine. You are the branches. One, two, three, four, five. I'm the, what do you think you have to do to stay connected? Just remain, remain, remain. He says it 11 times in five verses. Abide is another word. For it. Remain, 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 remain. Stay connected. Stay connected. Stay connected. You're not going to pursue something foolish if you stay connected. You're just going to produce fruit. That's what he says, right? You ever see a branch on the ground, like, disconnected from the vine, just like, you know, trying to produce fruit? It doesn't make any sense. A lot of us do that. That's what Jesus is like. Just stay connected. The rest of the stuff will happen on its own. He goes, in my kingdom, in this kingdom, the thing that I'm doing, you stay connected to the vine, and you'll know that you cannot fail. So anything I put on your heart to pursue, you're going to go for it, because it's for, it's for my glory, and you can't fail. You can't fail. He goes, I've done everything necessary to get to you. And the worst thing that can happen is you get to come be with me. And God's goal is that when people look at you, when they look at your life, that they will glorify your Father in heaven. And that's how you're a profitable servant. For decades, they said it couldn't be done. It was a great idea, crafted by someone with great vision, but structurally, no way they can pull it off. A bridge like that, suspended over that volume of water from landmass to landmass, they're just wasn't any way but in january of 1933 when they started work on that golden gate bridge they started they were a little bit nervous and as the first guy died they realized this is going to slow things down tremendously they were paralyzed with fear paralyzed with fear so strauss who was in charge of the project decided to take $130,000 and build a net. It would, it would go underneath the bridge and on the side, so anyone who fell, hypothetically, would be caught in the net. Weeks after the net was completed, the first worker fell. And that night, he went home to his family. And the next day, he showed up back to work. In fact, 19 men would fall into the net during the next phase of construction on the Golden Gate Bridge. They would proudly call themselves the halfway to hell club. <laughs> it boosted morale so much on the bridge that work was now being completed 25% faster than their original goals. In fact, they were, open, they were able to open the bridge far ahead of when they were slated to. Morale was so high and increased so much because of the safety net that four men now had to give news to their crews going, hey, no more jumping into the net. They were literally on their lunch breaks, belly flopping into the net. So a new rule went out. You cannot purposely fall into the net. Because of that net, only one man fell to his death working on the Golden Gate Bridge. They estimated 50 to 60. But simply because of a net that was put underneath, you cannot fail. It emboldened them. Fear 
isn't an option in this new kingdom. John says perfect love casts out all fear. So a few bottom lines from this story. One day we're going to give an account. In his kingdom, we can celebrate what others have and use what God's given us because what we have is not nearly as important as what we do with what we have. And we can discover who he created us to be by remaining in him. And your job is to relentlessly pursue who God's called you to be and pursue that by remaining in him. Oh, and you can't fail. Not with him as your net. Thank God for that. Thank you again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information about who we are, check out seacoastvineyard.com. We would love to hear from you. So make sure you leave us a review or drop us a message. Until next time, have a great day.